We are in our um, third part of our series in Galatians, uh, the defining terms that goes to the first two chapters in a little bit. We're going to transition to the third and fourth chapter, and then you know what we're going to do? Yeah, look at you. One person was smarter than here. Fifth and sixth chapter. Hey, how about that? Um, so we are going through, and the reason that we're going through Galatians, Galatians is actually a fascinating book for a number of different reasons, but specifically, Galatians was written to an area of churches, not one church specific, um, and in this area of churches, there was uh, kind of a central uh, tension that happened, and the tension uh, would best be described um, by a group, different groups of people who are bringing all kinds of different backgrounds and thoughts, um, ideologies, religions, uh, into this new banner of Christianity. And what I mean by that is we described it in the first week, it's best described as a marriage, um, where you have two distinct persons that are coming together, um, and the two shall become one, and when the two become one, there can oftentimes be friction. Well, this is what happened in the early church, because you had this entire group of people who were the Gentiles, and you had the entire group of people who were the Jews, and the Jewish people had the history and the lineage of God. They had all of the law, they had all of the prophets, they had all kinds of religious background. And the Gentiles, or the Greeks, had an entirely different set of background, entirely different set of beliefs that they walked into when they all of a sudden professed belief in Jesus that their prior religious experience brought them to. In the same way that you and I, as we walk into church, we have a variety of different backgrounds. As a non-denominational church, some of us have non-denominational backgrounds, some of us have uh, very traditional backgrounds, some of us have very charismatic backgrounds, some of us, we don't have any real Christian religious background, it's just kind of what we heard, what we understood, because you weren't perhaps raised in a church, but we all have backgrounds that we bring into it. Now, on top of that, what was interesting was as the Greeks and the Jews came together as Christians, it wasn't just an ideological, these were in every sense different ethnicities. There was as much of an ethnic mixture as there was of a religious and theological mixture as they came together. So they had a ton of stuff that they were working out and working through when they came together. And the central thought or the central problem that they ran into was this. How do you find yourself in God's good graces? How do you find yourself in God's good graces? Because all of the Gentiles, from their background, from their tons of different gods, tons of different people, tons of different beliefs, had one thought process about how Jesus put us in God's good graces. And the Jews had a different background about how God, they found themselves in God's good graces. Now, here's, here's why that's interesting. You and I, based on our background based on our religious upbringing or lack of religious upbringing, based on our cultures, based on our ideological worldviews, we all would probably answer that question in some senses similar like they would and in some senses different like they would because all of us bring our experiences, bring our culture, bring our background, and bring our religious thought into our Christianity or our version of Christianity. And so Paul, in seeing some errors in some inconsistencies, in this big geographical area that had an extraordinary diversity of people, said, let me clarify what this means and what this 
looks like. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about what that tension was as we get going this morning. Um, But we're going to open up to Galatians chapter 2 and start in verse 1 and tease it out kind of some of the context as we go through. Because in Galatians 2, Paul just got done talking about how he came to know Jesus, that he wasn't just a people pleaser, that he was in fact here to tell us the truth about God and about God's word. So this is what he says, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, if you've got your Bible. Then, after 14 years, now he just got done saying he spent about four years, um, three of which he spent, you know, kind of in the, not really desert, but in a particular place that he learned from Jesus, learned from God, that there wasn't something he was taught by men, but Jesus actually himself taught him. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, He names Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas and Titus, and there's a really good reason, which gives us some of the context of what was going on. Um, He's not just name dropping. He's not just like, man, I had my my boys with me, and this is who we were. You know, it's not just him, you know, saying that, you know, as Kevin Love, I also had, you know, D-Wade now on my team. So shout out, everybody, Cavs Nation, we're all about that, you know, and LeBron and D-Wade, and here, let's go, and let's take out Golden State, and let's just take out some knees if we need to. Speaking of which, how about that game yesterday? Anyway. Woo, kind of. We'll see what happens next week. So, different sermon, different day. So, anyway, so what happens is, so he says, and Barnabas was with me, and Titus was with me. Now, here's why. Barnabas would have appealed to the Jewish audience. Barnabas was well-known, had a great reputation with all the folks who were Jewish. As Paul goes up to Jerusalem, which was where the apostles were. The apostles were the guys who followed Jesus. They were the people who, whenever there was any controversy, the entire church would look to to say, apostles... You follow Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you talk with Jesus, you probably know better than we do, so what do you think about this? So there was the apostles, they went to go see, and Barnabas had a good reputation with the Jewish community. So he had that group represented as he walked towards Jerusalem. On the other side of it, he had Titus. Now Titus was Greek, and the controversy was around this idea of circumcision. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that There was, for them, a sense that all of the false teachers, as they would describe the gospel, would be Jesus plus some sense of morality, Jesus plus works, Jesus plus morality, Jesus plus a self-earned righteousness that you stand before God. Now, as they said that, they didn't know that that was a false gospel. That was what they thought the gospel was. And here's why. It wasn't just, as you read through the Bible, if you're not really familiar with circumcision and why that was significant, they're not just like, hey, let's just get really weird with the male anatomy and start talking about some stuff. Let's just go, what's the highest, you know, hurdle that we can think of people, you know, guys, how are we going to kill church attendance for people who aren't believers? You know, this is what you got to do to be a Christian. This is why this was so significant for them. In Genesis, God had given the nation of Israel a covenant. A covenant was basically the parameters or the framework between God and man. Or two different people could have a covenant with each other, but specifically in this covenant, it was the framework for God and for men. And in this framework, in this covenant back in the day, there were two different types of covenant. There was a covenant that depended on both parties' faithfulness, and there was a covenant that only depended on one party's faithfulness. And as God said, you are going to be my people I am going to be your God. It was a singular, faithful 
covenant. It was a covenant that only rested on God's faithfulness, not on man's faithfulness. But God said, there's going to be a sign that's associated with the covenant. In fact, he would tell Abraham, Abraham, this is going to be a sign for you, for your family, for all the nation of Israel, and for future generations, that you, that every man on the eighth day will be circumcised. And this will be for you a sign of my faithfulness. This will be a sign for all of you that when you see, when you remember, when you have your, you know, your kids that are born, that when you are circumcised, you will remember my faithfulness to you. But over hundreds of years, what happened was this sign of the faithfulness of God got turned into a sign of the faithfulness of the nation of Israel. In other words, what started out as a reminder of the faithfulness of God eventually turned into a way to prove to God that we are faithful to him. And so what they thought was, you don't have, you don't have to just believe in Jesus. In order to believe in Jesus, you have to become a Jew through circumcision, which now makes you eligible to be entered into this new covenant, that before you can get into the new covenant of Christ, you have to enter into the old covenant of Judaism, and then that makes you eligible for the new covenant of Christ. They weren't just thinking, how can we think of some wacky moralistic laws that we can come into? It was this sense, we need to prove our faithfulness to God before we can realize God's faithfulness to us and so they rested in this idea that God is pleased with me because of my faithfulness to him and if I don't prove my faithfulness to him through circumcision and through the law as they would define in all of the ten commandments and then all of the laws of Moses hundreds and hundreds of laws that I would prove my faithfulness to God and let me tell you why that's important inside of each one of us is a tendency and a temptation. It is what I would say is the religious gravitational pull towards moralism. It is the religious gravitational pull towards proving my way into God's good graces. The same thing that Paul wrote towards is the same thing that we experience. And Paul says, and we were going to clarify this idea Barnabas was with me, representing the Jews. Titus was with me, representing everybody who wasn't a Jew. And on top of that, the reason why Titus was with me is Titus, in a way, humanized this. Because it's easy to think about people. It's easy to think about ideas. But when you see the person who, as Titus was, a Greek, uncircumcised man, who now has the power of the Holy Spirit, it humanized the entire idea. So he says, we were walking, we were talking, we were headed to Jerusalem. And I went up because of a revelation set before them. The privately before those who seemed influential, verse 2, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, a little bit of controversy around what he's talking about here. Some people think, was Paul insecure that his gospel was incorrect or was Paul just making sure that their gospel was correct, that in fact, perhaps this thought process had gotten and run so deep that the entire apostolic authority of the gospel had been ruined because the apostles also thought you have to enter into this covenantal morality before you can be faithful. That you have to prove your faithfulness before you can experience God's faithfulness. So he says, so we went up because I wanted to make sure that this whole thing wasn't purposeless. And so this is what happens. He doesn't actually cover the actual conversation, but he gives us the outcome in verse 3. 
But, verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced or was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was Greek. He said, and so here's how the conversation went. You can tell how the conversation went by what happens at the end of the conversation. That Titus, as he was there, as we talked to the, the, to the official people, as we talked to the people that were in Jerusalem, what happened is at the end of the day, we all clarified and said, you know what? It is not about my faithfulness. It is about God's faithfulness. It's not about my faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness and getting into God's good graces. And so even Titus, who was with us, who was Greek, as he was there with us, he was not forced and he was not compelled to enter into this moralistic covenant. But, in verse 4, I think he says one of the most interesting statements. And here's why. For many of you in here, you're a Christian. And you realize transactionally that it's not about your faithfulness to God it's not about my faithfulness to God it's about God's work on the cross you understand almost mechanically and transactionally that there's nothing I can do to earn my way into God's good graces that I'm a sinner you're a sinner we're all sinful people and in light of that, God saw that, did not condemn us, but sent his one and only son to die for us. That on the cross, he was the substitution and took the punishment that we should have taken. That on the cross, he took the wrath, he took the judgment, he took the condemnation that I should have experienced because of my sin. But instead, offered ultimate love, ultimate grace, ultimate forgiveness, ultimate acceptance, that I cannot now out the love of God in my life. We understand that. But there's an emotion that Paul's about to talk about. As he would look out and say, there's some people that are spying that are trying to ruin this for us. There's an emotion that he talks about that I think is what, to me, informs that perhaps unintentionally, many of us have fallen into a false gospel. This is what he says. Verse 4. Yet... Because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Now here's, here's what Paul's saying. There's a sense in moralism that if you have to prove your way, if you have to work your way, if you have to behave your way into God's good graces, you feel like you are trying and trying and trying and working and working and working, and you essentially are a slave to moralism to hopefully try to prove your way into God's good graces. He said, but they're here and they're spying us out and they're trying to invade and take away our freedom. Now, significance is so big in this. Because Paul says, your and my relationship, our version of Christianity, when we think about God, ought to be described by freedom, not enslavement. We ought to feel free that we are forgiven, free to pursue Jesus, free to pursue Christ. But what happens for so many of us is we live in the camp that the Jews lived in when they lived in this time. 
that they felt a sense that I, through my faithfulness, I'm going to prove my way to God that I am good enough. See, we understand this for many of us on a salvific level, that we know for salvation I can't prove my way into God's good graces. But if God's going to be happy with me today, then I better, I better obey whatever it is, the sense of moralism that my sense of moralism is. And the reason I'm, I'm very vague about that is because for all of us, our threshold is different, right? For some of you, you're a really good person. And so when you were on your way here this morning and you sped because you were trying to get to church, you just felt this weight of like sin and conviction. Like, oh my gosh, I broke the law. I went, you know, 37 and a 35. And we would all say, would you just pray for all of us? Because you are so much better than anybody in here, right? Like the Pope would be like, hey, will you pray for me? Because that's just outrageous. For some of us, you're more like me. You kind of have a rebellious streak to you. And so, you know, you have like this. It, it takes you a lot of sin before you feel like, God ain't happy, you know? In fact, let's just be honest. For some of us, that's why we're here this morning. It's not because of the fact that you're like, man, I'm so convinced of Jesus. I just want to go and learn. It's like, man, I did some junk this week, and I better go to church because God ain't happy right now. And it's kind of like this little bucket, you know, that you just fill it up throughout the week. You fill up your sin bucket. You fill up your sin bucket. And whenever it hits that, you know, whatever your level of full is, you just sped twice and, and rolled through a stop sign. Oh, you know, you, you horrible, horrible person. Or you're just like, man, I don't, even want, I, don't even want, I don't even want him to give examples of what my bucket is. My bucket's just a little bit of an outrageous bucket. And so you just poured into it all week, and you came on Sunday, and you think, okay, I'm just going to pour it out, and God's going to be happy with me because I showed up. Let me tell you, that is enslavement the idea is that jesus death on the cross puts us and props us up into a right standing with god daily that there is nothing that i can do to earn my way out of god's good graces because there's nothing i did to earn my way into god's good graces i can't unearn something i didn't earn in the first place And it's because of Jesus, God's faithfulness, that I have a right standing with God every single day. Not because I did whatever my faithful acts are. You see, here's how I know that we're guilty of this, especially, again, I'm I'm talking specifically as Christians. If I sat down with 10 Christians to coffee individually, people who had probably been following Jesus for a while, I said, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going? How's your walk with Jesus going? Most would answer something like this. It's good. Why is it good? Man, I've just been reading my Bible and I've been praying. And I listen to this just sweet, you know, Chris Tomlin song. Maybe it's not Chris Tomlin anymore. You know, I listen to this Bethel Hill song, whatever the newest, coolest, you know, worshipiest, you know, and you got 35 bracelets. And man, I just, you know, I listened to this thing and it was just so inspirational. God and these angels were like singing to me. And I was like, oh, I surrender. You know, holy cow. I was going to say, I surrender all, but you guys are too young to remember that song, you know. So, you know, you just, man, I just, you know, this is what happened and I did this. And, and because I read and because I prayed and because of my time in the Word, I feel like God is happy with me. Or it could be better. Because I hadn't been reading. And I hadn't been praying. Because I've been doing some stuff. I've been at some places I know I shouldn't be. I've been with some people I know I shouldn't be with. Doing some stuff I know I shouldn't do. Or maybe when no one was looking, no one was watching, I was misbehaving. And I know what God called me to do. And I know I ain't been doing it. And I know God ain't happy with me. As well-intentioned as that is, that is moralistic slavery. 
Paul looked at him and said, you ought to feel freedom. You ought to feel freedom. Not that you just do whatever you want, wherever you want, but you ought to feel freedom. That you don't have to prove your way into God's good graces. You ought to feel a sense of freedom. That you are free to pursue God. Free to pursue the things of God. The Spirit, as we talk about next week, a ton of it, is the Spirit now gives you, guides you, compels you to live for Jesus. Not in order to gain God's love, but because you are already loved by God. You see, there's a huge difference in those things. And we confuse them regularly. We got a two-year-old. Two-and-a-half-year-old. She acts every bit of it sometimes. She's gotten into this wonderful habit um, of sometime between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. waking up, and <laughs> thankfully she doesn't come to my side of the bed. She goes to Lindsay's side of the bed. And she goes, she wakes up, you know, it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and wakes up, and she goes, Mama, I had a good nap. <laughs> it's like, no, sweet girl, you didn't. <laughs> You're about to have a good nap in about six more hours, but you have not had a good nap yet. But she sometimes behaves, sometimes misbehaves, and sometimes, you know, as we correct her, she listens to us. Sometimes as we correct her, she doesn't listen to us. But let me just tell you, here's my hope, is that as she grows up, she does not think that she needs to obey me in order to win my approval. Because there, I, 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 I don't want to just speak in ultimates, but I can't imagine something that she would do that would unearn my love. She could do just about anything, and I love her. You want to know why I hope she obeys me? When I say, Ava, don't touch that hot stove. Is because I love her and I know what's best for her when she doesn't know what's best for her. And I hope that she obeys me not in order to prove or to get my approval or my love. I hope it's because she knows how deeply I love and care for her that I would not ask her to touch a hot stove because I know it's going to hurt her. That she is free to obey me, not to gain my admiration, but because she already has it. That is the exact same thing that Paul is communicating. He says, man, don't be enslaved to the sense of moralism. Be free to pursue God because you are loved by God outside of your moralism. Because you can't earn your way into God's good graces. He continues as he goes on in verse 5. He says, to them... By the way, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, Paul realized, man, there is so much at stake here. The future of the church is dependent on this. The future of the church, Paul would say, was dependent on this. Let me just tell you, going forward, the future of the church is still dependent on this because, again, the longer we follow God, it is the gravitational pull of religion to float towards moralistic righteousness. Inside of each one of us, there is a gravitational pull to say, I have earned my way into God's good graces because of what I did, because of what I didn't do, because of what I gave, because of what I, the time that I spent. We all feel this pull. Paul says, no, 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 no. We didn't give into it for a moment. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me that God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, here's what he's talking about. That. He's not saying those who you know, were, were saying and, and agreeing with me, they'd added nothing to me. They, you know, just because they said I agree doesn't mean my message is more powerful. What he's saying is this. They agreed, and they said we should add nothing to the gospel. 
We should add nothing to the truth of God's salvific work on planet earth that is described by the faithfulness of God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Anything else to be added to that is a false sense of the gospel, a false sense of Christianity. So let me just ask you this. As you're going throughout your day and your week, would you describe, would your version of Christianity be defined by moralism or freedom? Would the way that you feel about God or the way that you feel like God feels about you be looked at in light of freedom, that I am free to pursue God, or that I have to prove to God? Because conceptually, we understand mechanically the framework and the transactional mechanism of the gospel. But I think that some of us, for a lot of us, in our heart deep down, we have bought into the false gospel. And our emotions, feelings, guys, we have them, are an indicator of that. Is it possible? That even though we conceptually understand, we still feel the weight of enslavement, of morality, and the law. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he, being God, worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, the God makes that confusing, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is fantastic. Paul's saying this. And so this is what they said. They said, Paul, you're right. We agree with you. In fact, we can see that God has his hand so much on what you're doing. Here's what we're going to say. You go to the, we'll, we're going we're to take care of the Jews. We're going to take care of the religious. We're going to take care of those folk. We're going to be here in Jerusalem. Paul, you take the rest of the world. <laughs> I would say, well, can I have like two of y'all? You know, that's, this, come on, let's, let's just even this out. But Paul said, no, because God is working. God is, let me tell you, that was the power. That was the freeing power of the gospel that Paul would be able to take this message to the entire world and say, man, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been, where you've been. I don't care who you've been with. I don't care because God in you has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It has nothing to do with your faithfulness. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness that on the cross he offered his son and when he offered his son it was not because of your good works it's because he so loved you he did not condemn you he did not judge you but he sent his son to die for us as the substitutionary taking our place that we should have taken rescue because we needed a rescue for our right standing with him and he has now given his holy spirit to us to live for him to have the freedom to live for him In fact, next week, he's going to talk about all of that. But it's almost like he leads into it in verse 10 when he says this. It's almost like he's saying, okay, so let me just clarify. There are implications. There are some things that will change in your life when you follow that freedom. But don't get the freedom confused with moralism. He says, in fact, this is what their one thing that they wanted me to do as I pursued the entire world with the power of the truth of God's faithfulness. Verse 10. Only they asked us 
to remember the poor, which Paul says was the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this gives some of the beginning of the action behind this. Because Paul says, the one thing that they asked me to do is say, hey, I want you to remember the poor. I want you to remember the marginalized. I want you to remember those who have been disenfranchised, who have been disassociated by culture and society. Their culture, different than our culture. Their society, different than our society. This is why this is one of the basic tenets of that church. We are so thankful that so many of you showed up for the HOPE program as it launched this last Monday and this last Wednesday that it's grown to the point where it's gone in two different places where we take students, especially from communities who have been marked by society and culture as marginalized. We said, man, these kids have so much value. So many of you have partnered with us this past Saturday with Project Tallahassee that's coming around again in about five weeks. Where we just partnered with tons of nonprofits in the area. And we said, man, how can we love and serve you as you love and serve a lot of the folks in our community? Because Paul says this. As he looked at the apostles, they said, man, don't forget to do that. <laughs> when Paul says, let me, just, let me just tell you how freedom works. It wasn't the very thing that I felt obligated to do. It wasn't the very thing that I felt like, man, I really, in order to be a good person, I ought to do that, and God would be happy with me. And James actually said that if anyone, you know, would consider himself religious, you know, uh, his, his religion that God ex- that finds pure and acceptable is that you would look after the widows and the orphans. So I know I really ought to do that because that's what God wants from me. He says, no. This was the very thing I was eager, wanting, desiring to do. This was the thing I was hoping for. This was the thing I was looking forward to. This is the thing that the entire time I'm sitting there saying, yes, that's what I want to. That's what I want to. This is what I want to. This is a really bad example, but excuse me because my mind's on football right now. But this is like, you know, fourth quarter. We've been, you know, throwing little nickel and dime passes, and we're four for four with four yards and five for seven with seven yards. And it's like, good grief. Can we pass the ball more than ten yards? And all of a sudden, Blackman drops back, and he throws one down the field, catches it, and all of a sudden everybody's like, thank God. God, you know, that was the very thing I was eager to have happen in that play calling, you know, throw a stinking ball, you know, and finally we're just like, yes. Now, <laughs> this is a really, really bad example, pardon me, but that is essentially what Paul's saying, man, that was the thing that I was hoping for. Internally, I had this sense that I was compelled to do the exact same thing. I was cheering for this. I was hoping for this. I was wanting this anyways. That ought to describe our motivation and holiness, That we don't behave because we have to earn our way. We feel free to pursue that which we already desire. And there is a huge difference. We don't behave to prove our faithfulness, to rest in our faithfulness to God. We are free to experience the faithfulness of God, which internally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, compels us to pursue that which God desires for us anyway. And sometimes, even internally, when I wake up, didn't get a good night's sleep, had a bad day, things have been stressful, and I know that internally I even kind of desire something else. I don't let my emotions control me, but I choose to trust in God what he says is best. And I choose to pursue holiness. Because I'm compelled that he's right. That if he would send his son to die for me, to give his son on the cross for me, then I can trust what he says is best. I'm just telling you, if you're here and you're new, 
trying to investigate Christianity, trying to investigate Jesus. Perhaps you walked in and your whole problem or part of your problem with Christianity was simply this. You felt like, and be fair, probably rightly so, because Christians for so long have had so many incredibly ignorant rules of what you can and can't do. Can't go see that movie. Can't listen to that kind of music. Did you know, by the way, that when forks first came around, that the, that the church was anti-fork because God gave us hands to, or fingers to eat with hands? I'm so glad that we backed up on that decision, you know? That's just, just dumb. But let me tell you, that's what moralism does. It makes us ignorant to the realities of God. It makes us ignorant to the realities that God has set us free from the law, so why would we re-enslave ourselves to such? In fact, that's what he's going to spend most of next week talking about. So let me ask you this. Would you define and describe your version of Christianity, your relationship with God, as freedom or as moralism? If you're in here, you're brand new, checking out church, I hope, I hope, I hope that perhaps you have been avoiding God because you knew of all the different rules that you would have to follow. I hope that you realize it is nothing about following rules. It is everything about the faithfulness of God displayed for our salvation on the cross that we daily acknowledge and walk in. And God actually internally changes our hearts and gives us the desire to pursue holiness. Not because we have to, but because we are free to.